Welcome to the third episode of Employment Law Problems, a labor and employment podcast hosted by me, Brett Hollebeck, your host, a labor and employment attorney here in Houston, Texas. And on this podcast, we focus on discussing some of the most pressing labor and employment problems that your business may face, whether you're a human resource representative, a manager of a company, or an owner. We talk about some of the most pressing issues that may affect your business. And in this episode, we'll be talking about union organizing. And specifically, we're going to be discussing briefly uh, Amazon's union organizing drive. And we're going to talk about what companies can do when union organizing occurs at their place of business, how companies can respond to that, how union organizing starts, and you know what companies can do before a union campaign actually begins. So it's one of my favorite topics. I know I said that last time, but Truly, this is, again, one of my absolute favorite topics, union organizing and union issues. And with that, we will get on to the very first segment. So in this first segment, I want to talk a little bit about the Amazon election. Many of you may be aware that Amazon had a union, actually a union election at one of its facilities in Bessemer, Alabama, one of the warehouse facilities there. And you may also be aware that Amazon won that election. They won that election with 1,798 no votes and 738 votes for the union. So they won by more than a two-to-one margin. And there are approximately 505 ballots that were challenged. Within that election were not counted. Amazon's election was probably one of the biggest elections that has happened in the last few years. Um, so further on in the segment, I want to talk about how union organizing drives begin. And, you know, some are employee-driven, some are union-driven. But first, I want to focus a minute on Amazon's election, because there's a couple of interesting things that happened there that I just want to briefly address. So, you know, the first is that, you know, it really became, really became kind of a major issue throughout the country. We saw lots of different individuals addressing the the election, we saw President Biden discussing the election in Amazon. We saw Bernie Sanders. We saw many, many, many you know politicians weighing in on this issue. And the final final vote you saw was you know a two to one vote. Now, one thing that's very interesting with this election is that you you may be hearing about the ballots being challenged. You may be hearing about issues um, with the election and the election being contested by the union. It's very, very common for unions to challenge elections and for companies to challenge the results of elections as well, because, you know, it is a big deal. It is a big deal whether you are unionized or not. And for the union, it's a big deal to get that many, that many new members and not only that many new members, but that many new members at a company like Amazon, a huge company that is to date, doesn't have any unionized facilities here in the U.S. So it would be a very very big election, no matter who won. You know, a two-to-one vote is a bit hard to overcome, but we'll see how that challenges play out. Some of you may be aware that there, the union's raising concerns that there was a post office, a postal drop box installed at the warehouse facility. So we'll see how that plays out. I'll you know keep you up to date as things change. But you know, many of you may be reading the news and you're hearing about these challenges, thinking this is such a new and radical thing, but really it's not. Any close election is going to typically be challenged. If if there can be enough ballots that could you know, sway the result of the election, or even if there is some kind of conduct on either side that could have influenced the vote 
and made it so that the vote should be essentially discounted and a new election take place, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be challenges. This is not uncommon. Many of you may be reading about how uncommon it is for a union election to be challenged or for, you know, um, for companies to, you know, face uh, face this kind of result. But it's really not that uncommon. It's really not that uncommon. It happens a lot. It happens anytime there's a big issue like this. And in most of the big companies, there are always going to be charges filed against the company um, by the union at the end of an election result, or sometimes even during an election. Usually during the campaign, there will be some sort of charges filed. So this isn't anything out of the norm that we're seeing here, but we will definitely be following along because it is an interesting case. And you know, if the union is is a successful case, if they you know win their appeal before the NLRB, and the NLRB finds that some of the conduct from Amazon, such as this discussion about whether or not it was appropriate for a postal drop box, a postal delivery box, to be established at the warehouse facility, if that becomes a point of contention, and the the NLRB finds that you know Amazon unduly influenced the election, then there'll be a new election that will take place. So. This is one of the reasons why there can be another election if their initial election is is tainted. And, you know, I'm not saying this election is tainted. You know, a two-to-one result is very hard to overcome. Those are pretty strong numbers in favor of not unionizing at the facility. So, you know, those are very, very big numbers to overcome. But it wouldn't be impossible for the union to overcome that election result. So that's definitely an interesting election that we've just had this year. And there'll be more. I mean... We're seeing a lot more companies facing unionization. We're seeing tech companies. We're seeing video game companies. We're seeing all kinds of different non-typical companies uh, face unionization campaigns, face union organizing drives. And we're seeing this talk about unions becoming up much more frequently. It's definitely a focus of the Biden administration. So it's something that I've been following along with and something that I plan to talk about more on this podcast as well. So talking about that, there are two main ways that a union organizing drive starts, union organizing campaign starts. So there is an employee-driven campaign, and that's typically caused by some kind of issue at the facility where the employees are actually the ones that decide that they need a union. Or there is a union-driven campaign where the union targets typically a major company and you know that's one of the reasons why Amazon was targeted. And then the union sends union organizers out to that facility to try to organize the facility. So we're going to go through both of those examples. But I want to briefly actually talk about the second one first. I think we're going to start with union-driven campaigns just because we have the example of Amazon to talk about. Union-driven campaigns are typically started, and I'm not talking about campaigns where the union becomes involved, but a union-driven campaign is a, is a campaign where the Union selects a target that they think is vulnerable to having a union or they think is going to raise their profile even if it's not successful, and maybe they'll have a, you know multiple elections at that site. And just to kind of zoom out for a second to 30,000 feet, what the union and what employees are trying to do in a union organizing campaign is they're trying to get 30% of employees to sign what's called a union authorization card. A union authorization card is basically a card stating that you want the union to represent you. And so if 30% of the employees sign union authorization cards, then that can trigger an election uh, when the union petitions the NLRB for that election. They need to show that evidence. Most unions aren't going to file an election with 30% of people uh, signing cards. They typically want a majority of people to sign cards, 60, 70% of people. 
um, the more the better, because signing that card obviously is a is a significant thing. It's a mental thing where employees are saying that they definitely want or they would like to have union representation. Some of them are you know not always sure about what those cards mean, but a lot of them you know know what they're signing and they know what that card indicates when they do so. So union driven campaigns like the campaign we saw at Amazon are typically started for a number of reasons. First, there are a major company. They're a major company. Unions like to go after, established unions like to go after big companies. Big companies where they can, you know, have lots of media attention, they can raise their profile, they can have involvement from politicians and other players within the country that may, you know, are that may be supportive to their cause, help them with their campaign. So a union organization drive is going to take place at a major company. It's not going to take place at mom's, you know, general store with five employees. Uh, it's just not a big enough target for a union to send a union organizer to come to the facility, pass out literature, stand in front of the parking lot off the company property, and try to you know solicit employees to vote for the union to support the union in that organizing drive. It's not worth their time. A lot of unions have certain types of employees that they tend to represent. So, you know, the steelworkers union, they tend to represent steelworkers. The United Farm Workers, you know, they tend to represent, you know, farmhands and other individuals like that. So a lot of unions, though, when they're looking to target a company, they kind of look within that typical sphere of, of what they know. The UFCW, another example, they, you know, are going to target meat companies. They're going to target, you know, processing plants and other places like that, any kind of food processing facilities, because they have industry-specific knowledge as well. So when you have a union organizing drive at your facility and, you know, you're maybe you see some literature, maybe you see some more information about the union, it's probably going to be the case that the that the union is going to have a relationship to your type of business you have. You know, it's it would be a little bit unusual for the UFCW and this does happen. I mean, it can happen, but it's not as typical for the UFCW to go and they are soliciting uh, one of the major steel mills that is still, you know, non-unionized in the United States. It would just be less typical for them to do that. They don't have as much knowledge of, you know, what what steel workers are driven by. So they're typically not going to do that. And also, too, sometimes they don't want to step on each other's toes. You know, that may get into some of the steel workers. That may get into some of the you know, Teamsters, if it's more of, you know, some other kinds of, you know, sort of that kind of same industrial environment, maybe not a steel mill, but something similar, they're going to tend to stick within their wheelhouse. So unions are typically going to target companies that are within their particular sphere. Uh, you know, oftentimes the target for a union-driven campaign is going to be a target for many years. You know, Walmart's going to get hit by the UFCW or one of the other unions every single year at some of their facilities. They're going to come and they're going to campaign there and they're going to keep having votes um, same thing with some of the auto manufacturing plants that are still non-unionized in the united states you will see the union show up year after year if there's a vote if there's a vote like there's been at amazon and this is another reason i should mention why the amazon election is so important if there's a vote and the election fails then there's a bar for a year for that union to to you know come back and to uh, have another election so there is a one-year bar for another election after an unsuccessful campaign. So that's something that you know many companies aren't necessarily aware of, but it is something to you know be aware of if you are 
if you have been subject to a campaign. Another thing that unit-driven campaigns are done by, there's typically, like I said, a desire for large units over small units. So union organizing drive, they're going to look for bigger units that make more economical sense for them to organize. They're not going to go for a one or two or three person unit because it's not going to deliver the kind of return that they need to make that investment worthwhile for the union because the union is going to do certain things. They're going to bargain for the for the employees. They're going to try to you know form a collective bargaining agreement. They're going to do a number of things. And, you know, a one or two, three man bargaining unit is just not really worth their time. Now, moving on to kind of the, the transition between the second and the third one, um, some are going to be contacted by employees. So you may have a case where a union is contacted by employees to run a campaign. And, you know, when the employees contact the union, the union may get involved as well. So if the employees contact the union and they say, hey, I've got 15 out of 20 people that are ready to sign cards and have signed, you know, we just need to know what to do. And, you know, the union is going to probably help that person out. That's easy for them to do, to give it the, to deliver the cards. And there may not be that much work for them to do. But if they are actually initiating their own campaign, if they are the, the starting, you know, at the very start of the campaign, they're the ones that are coming in, they're looking for those other factors. A major company within their typical sphere they're going to be a target for many years or have been a target for many years. They might be vulnerable. This is one thing I forgot to mention. Vulnerable because of other unionized facilities in the area is another factor that unions often look for. And they're going to desire those small, large units over small ones. So, you know, moving on to the second type of organizing campaign, the second way that an organizing campaign starts is when a campaign is employee-driven. So in a campaign that may be employee-driven, it's going to be caused typically by some kind of issue at the facility that makes the employees think that they need a union to represent their interests. And so among the most common reasons are employees not being treated fairly. People aren't, there's you know nepotism where somebody is getting promoted just because they are a family member or they know the boss or they like the boss or you know people aren't being treated similarly in terms of discipline or people are getting away with other things that other people aren't getting away with because they're following the rules and you know some people are some supervisors are letting the rules slide for some employees or favoring some employees for overtime or for other issues anytime there's favoritism there is you know risk of a union a bad boss a bad boss may be another reason for a union so if you have a a boss that is not helpful to the employees they are causing lots of problems that can be another reason that employees think that you know they maybe there's the boss that's not basically exploding on people and is not treating people fairly and has basically goes from zero to 100 from perfectly fine to very very angry you're gonna many employees are gonna think that a union is going to be able to come in and fix that um a poor safety record safety is another major issue that unions tend to to that tends to cause unionization. So if a company has a poor safety record, employees start to think that they need a union to protect themselves um, because a lot of these unions do offer um, some insights into that. And so if there's a poor safety record at the facility, that may be something that the employees decide requires a union. Poor job security is another one. They may feel that you know if layoffs are coming or layoffs aren't conducted fairly, um, that the union's going to save their jobs. That may be something else that employees believe that, you know, might happen, that that might be a cause for them to join a union. Um, and then finally, employees 
coming from another unionized facility and maybe they had things that they liked at that other facility and that makes them think that they need a, a union at their current facility at their new job so those are basically the two ways that a union organizing campaign starts we have employee-driven campaigns, we have union-driven campaigns. And with that, we are going to move on to the second segment of this podcast. Where we're going to talk about what employers can do during a union organizing campaign. What can they do before a campaign starts? And what can they do once a campaign is already at their facility? Welcome back to the second part of this episode where we're going to be talking about what employers can do during an organizing campaign, both what they can do before organizing starts and what they can do when they become aware that employees are seeking to form a union at the company. Now, there's some different rules. So before employees you know, decide that they're going to form a union, you can do a lot of different things. You can... Do a lot of different things to limit the chances that a union is going to be formed. For example, companies may have a no solicitation policy that prohibits employees from soliciting others or soliciting other employees during working time and in working areas. So you can, you know, make sure that you are prohibiting employees from soliciting other employees when they're on the job. And basically, what that does is it would prohibit, you know, any sort of solicitation, whether it's you know for Girl Scout cookies or a union organizing. To be, or, uh, to be representative of the employees at the facility, it would prohibit both those different items. Another thing companies can do before a campaign begins is you can have a regular practice of soliciting employee complaints and grievances. So you may do those through different things, different channels. You may have a suggestion box. You may have small meetings with employees. You may do exit interviews and onboarding entrance interviews, yearly reviews with employees. You may have certain meetings made up of certain members of the facility, such as employees that are basically representative from their various areas of the work site. Or perhaps you may have employees that come to a big meeting. You might have a giant meeting with everybody and you know may work things out or do things in multiple meetings and have you know especially when you're presenting new things to the company solicit grievances and complaints that way so those are options to solicit complaints and grievances and you can also communicate with employees regularly and quickly respond to any grievances that we that they have remember we talked about the beginning that employees um, have a lot of grievances sometimes and empl- companies that are more responsive to those grievances tend to not have as many problems with unions and you know there are easy ways to make sure you're getting those grievances. Now, when a union campaign begins, you are prohibited from doing a lot of different things. And I briefly want to talk about what you're prohibited from doing. And typically, you know, you would become aware when a union organizing campaign starts, when somebody makes, you know, an announcement that they're organizing at the facility, you see union organizers outside Every company passing out flyers, you know, maybe in the parking lot, you see them elsewhere. You see employees talking about unions. You have an employee that comes to you and tells you that they're thinking about forming a union or other employees are and they don't know what to do. They don't really want a union, whatever it might be. So there are there's a there's a little acronym that we use to talk about what employers can and cannot do. And then I'll talk about kind of what things you can do. But first, I think it's important to talk about what you cannot do. And it's going to color a little bit what we said before, um, because one of those, and really a few of those, relate back to the things that companies can do before union campaign starts. And if you have a past practice of doing those things, 
you can continue to do those things during a union organizing drive typically. Um, you can't make changes to what you've done in the past, but if you do exit interviews with every employee and you have a set set questions that you ask them and you're not changing it and asking them about the union, then you can keep doing that after the union campaign begins. If you do regular meetings with employees, quarterly meetings, whatever it might be, where you solicit grievances, you can continue to do that. If you have a solicitation policy where you know employees can, a no, a no solicitation policy, you can continue to enforce that policy. If you have an open door policy, you can use that. Suggestion boxes. What you can't do is make changes to those policies to try to improve working conditions or to try to sway employees to support the union. So the acronym that we tend to use, or a lot of people use, that are labor lawyers, we, we do what's called tips. You cannot, we do tips training oftentimes. So tips, you can't threaten, interrogate, promise, or spy. Employers cannot threaten, interrogate, promise, or spy. And employers doesn't just mean the owners of the company. It means supervisors. It means human resources professionals. It doesn't mean other employees of the company, you know, that aren't a supervisor or are not a human resource representative, where they would be the agents of the employer and would not be members of the bargaining unit because supervisors typically cannot be members of the bargaining unit. I don't want to get into some of the weeds with employer with employees that are promoted to supervisor that were unit members of the union because there can be some some weird and you know some some different interesting things that companies and employees try to do with that situation. Uh, but typically when you become a supervisor, you no longer can be a member of the union because you are representing the employer's interest. And that's the general rule. I mean, that is almost universally true. And there sometimes are questions of whether or not somebody is a supervisor like lead persons. And there can be arguments on both sides. And I don't really want to get into those tests. So for the purpose of this, you know, tips means that employers such as supervisors and human resource representatives cannot threaten, interrogate, promise, or spy. They cannot threaten employees. Hey, if you join the union, you will be fired. If this company votes for a union, we will shut down this facility. We will move our operations. That would be illegal. You cannot do that. If you do that, you have you know violated the election, you know, the NLRB rules uh, from the National Labor Relations Act, and there will be a new election. There will also be unfair labor practice uh, charges filed against you, and you'll have to deal with those legal costs as well. You cannot interrogate employees. Now, interrogate them about the union, about their union affiliation. So you cannot interrogate them about that. So you cannot ask questions about, hey, I saw you were, you know, heard there's a union meeting tonight. Where are you going to go? Hey, what you guys talk about the last you know, union hall meeting? I really love to know what, what's going on. What the law does allow employers to do is you can listen. So if an employee comes to you and they don't want to join the union, but they say, hey, these people are talking about a union and I don't really want a union. And they're saying that the union's going to give us all these benefits and they're going to, you know, make sure that there's never a layoff at the facility again. And all these other things that they're going to do, you can listen. You cannot keep asking them questions that you shouldn't would violate this principle. So you can't ask them like, hey, when's the next union meeting? Can you find out you know, when the next union, is, union meeting is for me and let me know? No, that's, that's improper. Promise. Employers cannot make promises to the employees for benefits or for other things if they don't vote for the union. So this is a little bit tricky because sometimes there are things that are already being in, instituted at the company and those can often continue. It's a bit of a fact-specific question, and again, that's why I do not give legal advice on this podcast. These are just kind of, we're reviewing the law, we're talking about it, we're having some 
fun or learning a little bit. But this is a, these these labor union issues are really fact specific questions, and you really need an expert to help you work through them. Because I am painting over this with a very broad brush, and we are at maybe twenty thousand feet. We are not at the particular problems that may be at your organization. So you really need somebody that's an expert, and it is very easy to make a mistake. So you cannot make promises. So again, if you have something that was already being implemented, you can often continue to do that. So if you have already announced a wage increase that will take place in one month, and you you know sent emails out, you made all these announcements, and you find out two weeks later that there's been there's union organizing at the facility, like the union comes you probably can continue with that. Now, there are nuances of that. I don't want to give legal advice again, but that's not really a promise about union, you know, what's going to happen if a union comes in. You're not promising them more money if the union comes or doesn't come, if they don't vote for the union. That's not the kind of thing that is covered under this promise thing. Under this promise would be, you know, new consideration, new things you're giving the employees. Hey, if you don't vote for the union, I will give you a wage increase. Hey, if you don't vote for the union, I will, you know, send out gift cards to everybody. Hey, if you don't vote for the union, we're going to we're going to make sure that we promote everybody. We're going to start a college fund. We're going to do whatever it is you're going to do, and it's typically if you don't vote for a union. Now, again, you cannot make you cannot usually make new changes and new policies because it's going to be seen that you are going to try to influence the union. So, if you didn't have any kind of scheduled wage increase going on, and then the union comes in, and they're campaigning very heavily. And there are distinctions here as well with what you can do before they file basically with the NLRB, letting them know that they have had enough union authorization cards to have an election and before that. So once they file, and I'm not going to talk about before they file because there's a lot of gray, but once a union has enough authorization cards signed, again, that's 30%. Of employees at the facility that can make up the bargaining unit, I should say, then you know you are even more constrained in what you cannot, what you can do. So in that case, if you you guys have all signed union authorization cards, you've you know filed a petition for an election with the NLRB, but you know what? I want to give you guys a raise because you've done such good work. That may be seen as a promise, some kind of benefit you're going to give them if they don't vote for the union, because it is in this context of union organizing and would violate the National Labor Relations Act. And the final one is spy. Union, you know, you cannot go to the meeting. You cannot go to the union meeting that's going on at the local um, you know, watering hole, whatever it might be. And right now it's over Zoom or over, you know, some other sort of software. You cannot supervisors cannot go there. If a supervisor is, you know, at a restaurant or at, you know, some place and they notice that all these employees come in and they're talking about the union, the supervisor would probably be best served to leave as soon as possible. Maybe even through a side exit after paying their bill, if that exists, so that there's not any sort of trouble for the supervisor. Because the way that this this works is that a supervisor could have unfair labor charges filed against them, well, fired against the company and also against them as you know, the named individual of the company that named supervisor, agent of the company that violated the National Labor Relations Act. And for supervisors, it is not fun having to explain any sort of a violation of the law to you know the company and the company having to spend money to defend this basically lawsuit through this administrative proceeding against them. So those are things employees cannot employers cannot do. 
threaten, interrogate, promise, and spy. Now, there are certain things that employers can do during a union organizing campaign. So employers can correct any untrue statement or misstatement from the union. So a union may promise that we're going to get you a $5 increase in your wages. And employers can tell employees that a union cannot agree, cannot guarantee that wages will go up. That is typically, um, again, these are very fact-specific and changing. And the way that you say things, some things can be said in such a way that they may, be, may not be a violation of law. Some things can be said in a way that even though they sound very similarly, could be a violation of the law. But saying, telling employees that you union cannot guarantee that wages will go up is not generally speaking, going to be a violation of the NLRA. You know, you can correct those untrue statements. Other misstatements might be, you know, direct allegations about the company. You know, that the company, the company president just bought a new Corvette or, you know, the company president fired an employee for engaging in union organizing and they, you know, whatever. Maybe there's a justified reason. And that's something the company can share if there's no agreement with that individual, you know, confidentiality agreement, if they didn't sign a severance or anything like that, or that the wasn't subject to a severance, the company could say, no, he violated our safety rules and we fired him for safety violations. So that's one thing that companies can do. Employers and supervisors can also discuss their own experiences with unions. And again, all these, you need to be careful. And I always recommend that you do specific training for your supervisors. Again, we are going over this with a very broad brushstroke of typically what is and what is not allowed under the law and just kind of talking about what happens in a union organizing campaign. But supervisors can discuss their own experiences with the union. They can say that, you know, I was at a unionized facility and wasn't promoted, even though I was, you know, doing X, Y, Z, I was, you know, getting more loads than another employee. It was all based on seniority. They can say that. You know, they can talk about their own experiences. You need to be careful with what you say. There are things that could violate the law, but they can generally share their own experiences with unions. Employers can tell employees that the company's imposed to union representation. They can talk about what it means to be represented by a union, what it doesn't mean to be represented by a union. They can tell employees that they are opposed. And if you are opposed, you should say that. You should tell employees, we don't want a union here. We think that the best thing is that employees are able to work through us without a third party uh, to bring their grievances and to raise concerns and problems with the company and that we can address those problems without having to engage in bargaining over those issues. And we're going to talk more about that at a later time. But, you know, you can talk with that about the company with, with employees and let them know, hey, we don't want a union at our facility. We don't believe we need one. Companies can compare the pay and benefits of employees at the company to union facilities, and their benefits are the same. You can, you might want to share that. Employers can also tell employ, tell employees that if they join a union, they'll be required to pay union dues, initiation fees. They could be via, fined for violating union rules. You know, you can talk about what happens in a strike. You can talk about what happens with their some other issues with the unionized facilities. You can talk about some of the other things with with unionization, what it means for the employees. So those are typically the main things that employers can do during a union organizing campaign. And really the most beneficial things that employers do are making sure that employees' grievances are being heard. Anytime employers have a problem with employees, 
that problem can serve as a wedge issue. Unions look for the wedge issue that they can use to organize a facility. And many employees, you know, don't really want a union, don't really need a union. If they're, you know, getting what they need from their company and they're having a very good working relationship, it may not be necessary, especially employees that, you know, may feel that they want a different system than the typical system that happens in a unionized environment where a lot of things may be decided by seniority. And, you know, especially in terms of layoffs and other issues and not really so much by necessarily the employees that are performing the best or maybe best suited in a specific role for a promotion. So, you know, there are a lot of more issues we could talk about with why and how to respond to union organizing campaigns. But given the context of the Amazon campaign that just happened and the issues that that has sprung up with many people, you know, looking at the issue, looking at why they won, making comments about why they won. You know, again, Amazon won by a two to one vote. And there are a lot of legitimate reasons that employees don't want unions. And a lot of people don't always hear about that. A lot of people don't read about that in articles. It is very typical that employees don't necessarily want a union. Employees may not want a union because they, again, don't feel that they need a third person to go through through them to raise their issues with the company. They may have been in a unionized workplace before and seen that, you know, at that particular facility, the union came. The only time the union came and talked to the employees was when there was, you know, the next contract. They would hear from the union every three years when they did the contract. And they just didn't see the point in having a union. That's very possible. That's one reason that a lot of employees don't want unions. They may see that the unions aren't getting them the same benefits. Um, as other places, and they're really just paying union dues to get the same benefits as other companies and other employees in their typical in their typical job. Now, again, this is more job specific, so this may not be true overall for all unions or as looking at the in general. But at a specific facility, this could be you know something that they experience where that union didn't get them any better benefits or anything than they would have gotten had they been not unionized. Of course, there is the political issue. Unions tend to vote and uh, tend to support Democratic candidates. And about 40% of membership of unions is approximately 40% is Republican. And so some people don't want their dollars to go to their union dollars, if they're a union member, to go to supporting part Democratic candidates and causes because that's not what they believe in. And unions are large donors to the Democratic uh, campaign, the Democratic Party. Other people, you know, they may be working at a Kroger or something like that, that may be a a job that the difference in the pay from the unionized facility to the non-unionized facility is almost nothing. And they may think that it makes it harder for them to get anything done or get what they want because at a lot of some of those facilities, there are people that are more long-term at, you know, grocery stores, there are long-term employees, and then there are short-term employees. And it may be more difficult for the short-term employees with the union to get as much say because they're short-term employees and the union may be representing the interest of the long-term employees because those are the employees that have been there and would support them in any kind of decertification campaign. So there really are a lot of reasons, you know, why employees don't want unions. And, you know, the Amazon campaign, it's not really about the, you'll, you'll see a lot of, you might've seen some talk about the reasons why the employees voted down the campaign. But the fact of the matter is it's really, there are a number of reasons why employees maybe don't want a union. There's a lot of reasons why employees do want a union as well. You know, essentially, we will never fully understand those reasons at that particular facility. But 
again, I want to finalize and emphasize on, and kind of end on this note in this episode that a unit organizing drive is typically started by some kind of wedge issue. And it is very critical when that happens that the company decides what it wants to do. If it wants to oppose the union or if it wants to, you know, recognize the union, which is an option. Companies can recognize unions. There are a lot of reasons that most companies don't want to do that. But some companies do decide that it is beneficial for them to recognize the union. This happens sometimes among newspapers and other places where the the may be a foregone conclusion. And so the company may be able to get some benefit as well and some goodwill by recognizing the union. And with that, we're going to move on to the final conclusion of this podcast episode and wrap it up. And I hope you've learned a little bit more about you know responding to union organizing today in this episode. Well, that wraps up another episode of Employment Law Problems. I hope you learned a little bit more about what happens during a unionizing campaign, what companies can and cannot do during this episode. We talked a little bit about the Amazon campaign and how interesting that is, and maybe somewhat how normal that is where you know results are challenged during a union organizing drive. So, you know, again, I want to remind you during this episode, especially labor law is very, very complex. Um, it is something that you know, not every attorney has had experience with, not every employment attorney has experience with. It's something that a lot of companies can mess up very quickly. And, you know, again, in this podcast, this is not legal advice. If you have a problem related to union organizing, you need to talk to a lawyer. You need to talk to someone with experience. And it is one of those areas where you can get in a lot of um, difficulty if there is slightly different phrasing in what you say, slightly different conduct, and different conditions at your facility. And we kind of saw a lot of that today with what you know companies can and cannot do during a campaign. And, you know, again, if you did some things beforehand, if you had past practices, being able to continue those past practices, but if you institute new policy changes, that would be unlawful during a campaign, depending upon what stage that campaign is in. So again, labor law, very, very complex, very fact-specific, something that is not something you want to take legal advice from a podcast on. Let's put it that way. So if you have a legal problem related to labor law, related to union organizing, you need to talk to your lawyer. You need to find a lawyer. And with that, I will see you on the next episode of Employment Law Problems. And I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Mm-hmm.